Hello, and welcome to the Beyond the Screen podcast. I am your host, Ryan Gum. And I'm your co-host, Cole Ballinger. How you doing, Cole? Doing well. Um, just got back to my apartment, and I'm ready to flesh out uh, some movies and some uh, film news. Yeah, yeah. So, as you just explained to those at home that are new to the podcast, Beyond the Screen is our very own take on cinema, whether it be cinema news, movies of the past, or recent movies that have just come out. And those three things that I just described pretty much sum up our three segments. We start each show where we go over the last week in cinema, and then after that we will move into my favorite oh. segment personally, where we go over a month, an entire month of a director's catalog. So for this month, Cole, do you want to explain who we have? We have uh, Robert Eggers. is a fantastic director with a very small... Um small catalog of films he is only 38 years old so he hasn't been in hollywood for too long he only has two films out lighthouse and the witch with the northman coming out very shortly and a rumored nosferatu project being in um in production very shortly yeah i mean to many sources on that one i had actually heard that um robert pattinson was in before even the lighthouse because robert pattinson had watched the witch and wanted to work with eggers and apparently eggers brought up the nosferatu project and pattinson said no because he thought it was boring and that's how he ended up on the lighthouse was calling nosferatu boring might be a bit of a stretch but yeah, i would have to have I, seen I just the read that i just read that i don't know like once again like that's not something i have in my papers so like it could be completely fabricated by something that i read but that it would be hilarious if 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 robert pattinson looked this man in the eyes and said nosferatu's boring have you seen the have you seen the 1922 nosferatu clips of it i haven't seen it all, like all the way through but i've heard some pretty good stuff from it oh i mean i don't necessarily find it. many people share the sentiment uh films from the era the 20s and the 30s are not the most intriguing films for the viewer that's why people don't really sit around and watch them um the uh, the the form the art hadn't really come into its full effect yet right but with that being said osferatu fantastic and gripping through its entire runtime interesting and to kind of rebuttal what you said about movies like yeah i agree with you that a lot of movies in that time hadn't really accomplished that art form but another movie in the same germanic style is uh the, the cabinet of dr caligari which i absolutely adore i love that movie love that movie i haven't seen it that's but that's on my list for sure that one's that one um it its history was really convoluted as it had a couple writers and there wasn't really like during production there are reports of uh, back in the 30s of just issues with story arcs and disagreements among the creative teams but just when you watch it you would never know like it's just it's so much fun and it's really interesting to see and just when you're watching it for those that haven't seen it and for you especially Cole when you're watching it and you see the shadows and you see the convoluted size of the doorways everything in the background that these characters walk through and these actors is all painted. That's not like original background. That's all like from the shadows to the ground or to the shadows to the ground. That's all painted. Uh, I'm actually looking um, at some screen caps of it and it's truly, um, it's uh, it's a sublime film from what I can see. Uh, very almost, uh, I'm not going to call it, what, what would you call that? 
I mean, just exactly what it is. It's it's Germanic, that Germanic goth style that was, or German expressionism that was huge in the like. I, was it pre World War Two? I think. I think it was thirties. I, I, I said thirties. So. Did did uh, correct me? Caligari came out in the thirties, did it not? Let's look here. Nineteen twenty, actually. Nineteen twenty. So post World War One. Yeah. So that and it's just like I said, like. I gotta watch Nosferatu, and you gotta watch the the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. But with that said, I think it's time to get to modern times and move into actual news of today, because we got a lot to cover, my man. I'm ready, let's go. Alright, one of the movies we're gonna cover later, but just a tidbit to start us off. Morbius, Sony and Marvel's latest duo project, tops 100 million in global earnings, which sounds great at first, but it's couple facts that we kind of have to go off of the movie dropped in the last week 74 percent in box office earnings that is the worst among modern superhero films and that list includes x-men dark phoenix batman vs superman hulk and x-men origins wolverine and so on and so forth so what what do you think about this drop-off call i can only speak for myself I think Jared Leto is an insufferable creep. <laughs> and no one wants to watch a movie with Jared Leto as the lead after his abysmal poker performance. Don't get me wrong, Leto's a great actor. Dallas Buyers Club, uh, he probably won like a super duper Oscar for that. I mean, it's a crazy performance. It's amazing. Uh, he was in Fight Club. Um, and Leto, you can go on and on. Leto's been in a lot of movies. And he's done a lot of stuff with his life. He's a very talented individual. Right. 30 Seconds to Mars. Not likable. 30 Seconds to Mars. I've got a couple of his songs always playing. Right. Yeah, but he has a a cult where people pay to have sex with him. (laughs) Average. The average person, they've seen these stories about Leto. They've... You know, they've seen the, the Joker performance and they're just not interested in half Sony, half Marvel, kind of in the MCU, kind of not. Jared Leto movie about vampires. It, the the appeal is not there. Right, and and we'll go over this later, like I said, in our third segment, like, we'll go over the movie itself in more detail. Um, I, I actually think half of why it dropped so much isn't necessarily the movie itself. Um, and like I said, the first half we'll go over in a little bit, but the other half actually segues into our next news article of the day. We have a weekend winner, and that is Sonic of the Hedgehog 2, directed by Jeff Fowler. It has earned $71 million in its opening box office weekend. That is the biggest box, op- box office opening for any video game movie adaptation ever. Which is really? insane. Yes, $71 million. The next closest was Morbius at 10 um, what are some uh, what are some video game film adaptations uh, in the past? Well, you've had the, the obviously that atrocious Mario like live action from the '90s, if I remember correctly. Um, I've seen that. It's, uh, it's you know what? I don't like it at all. I didn't enjoy it. Yeah, I, I, like I, there was nothing in the movie that was charming or interesting. So strange. Such a strange way to portray Mario. Yeah. Luigi is like 
I don't like these New York. I I don't know exactly what they are, but I don't like it. So I'm looking at other like video games. Uh, Slender Man was actually made into a movie not that long ago, and that one was a uh, pretty bad. Uh... Hey, what what about Detective Pikachu? I would I would have put my money that that had a bigger opening. See, it's weird because like, too. was that a? Now I'm not a big like or a Pokemon fan, so I I don't know if you are, but I'll pose the question anyway. Was it a show before it was a, a video game? Because if it was a show, then I don't think it classifies. It was a video game before a show. Really? It was a video game before it was a card game, if I'm not mistaken. It started with... I think it was a, a card game a... to begin with, but I think it became a video. If if Okay, so... Oh, let's, yeah. Let's... uh. Angry Birds was also Let's another one. Angry Birds was one that Ooh, was yeah. a uh, video game adaptation that was actually not very good. Um, apparently, Street Fighter in 1994 had one. Obviously, Mortal, Com- Mortal Kombat was another one that's had a lot. Uh, oh yeah, Tomb Raider, Resident Evil. Resident Evil. Those are the those are the ones that people like really like. Hitman. Uh, yeah, yeah, Hitman was one. They've made a couple of those, haven't they? I think there's one that either just came out or that's coming out soon. Yeah, I, I do think that um, there are a lot. Um, and Sonic the Hedgehog 2 tops them all. Upcoming video game adaptations, there's going to be a Five Nights at Freddy's film, um, Gears of War, and... The last one I'm going to name because there are so many movies that are based on video games that are coming out. But there is a Ghost of Tsushima adaptation coming, which I am excited for because that one's already very cinematic. All three of those films will make $500 billion at the box office. So much money. So much money. The Five Nights at Freddy's movie especially, man. Dude, that cult follows that. I know six or seven kids that smell like ketchup and have an iPad with them every time you see them. Yeah, all gonna be in that theater. Every oh. one of these smelly little TikTok kids are gonna be in that theater, and they're gonna get the the crap scared out of them. Oh yeah, but Hopefully I do too. But I do want to give it the credit it deserves. the The lore behind that video game franchise is actually kind of interesting. Once you can, once you dive deep into it, obviously this is a film, so we're not gonna go into the uh, the NAF cult fandom. But <laughs> stay away from. Uh, as much FNAF content as we can. Yeah. So <laughs> on, this on that note, we're going to move on to the next note. Um, next week, we're going to be watching in theaters and going back over on this podcast, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. With that, I want to bring up this factoid, which I feel like you never see. And this just makes me so excited because I've been hyped for this movie. Me and you have actually talked about it when it was first teased months and months ago when we were actually discussing this very podcast concept. The Unbearable Way to Massive Talent, directed by Tom Gormican, sits at 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. 27 reviews from Rotten Tomatoes, and they, it still sits at 100%. Everyone's giving it a five star. Oh my gosh, it's insane. Like, and that, like, that's what I'm saying. Like, we were so excited for this movie back when we were creating this concept and kind of going over this. As we get, like, reach... The day that is this Friday, it comes out April 15th. I just get more and more excited. This weekend, you bet I'm in a movie theater watching this, and I'm so I hope you are too, because I want to debate this movie. 
We'll pick it apart. We can do it, man. Like, I'm always down for some cage. So, I'm, dude, if same. anyone knows me, I'm into Nicolas Cage. And see, I mean, his, I feel like some of his two DVD movies are, re- like, Mandy and Pig, and some of those movies are actually not that bad. Like, they're pretty good. I think Mandy's a masterpiece. Yeah, no, that's another one that we... Mandy more than I've been moved by many films, actually. It, it's really good, and it looks fantastic. Maybe the use should... of color in the film. Maybe we should have a month of um, Nick Cage. We should. Oh, we should. Absolutely. We'd watch Raising Arizona. Yeah. Um, Gone in One of my seconds. favorite comedy movies. Yeah. Uh, well, he, what's the movie he did with Cher back in the day that everyone likes? I have. Oh, I could mm. not tell you off the top of my head, but I do know what you're talking about. But That's what I'm called. Moonstruck. Moonstruck. I've seen a bit of that. Yeah, people love that. That's a cult classic for sure. So, some, so that will be something that we explore in the future if you're a Nick Cage fan. Um, maybe you'll enjoy that. But I want to move on because, once again, we got so much happening that we need to continue. Um, just broke today, actually. Disney Plus's Percy Jackson series has found its star in the Adam Project's Walker Scobell. What do you think of that casting? Looking at him, looking at him. Is he the son of Poseidon? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> This is the first that I'm hearing of this. But yeah, he... Oh, that's Percy, man. That's Percy Jackson. He's a young kid. It's not like they're casting, like, a 25-year-old as a as a teenager. He's a, This is a kid. Right. And I, I think that with the popularity of both Disney Plus and the Rick Reardon series, Percy Jackson, they grow up with this kid. Younger generations are going to grow up with this kid as we did with Daniel Radcliffe and Harry Potter. I think I like, I like, sorry, go ahead. I just, uh, I like the looks of them. I have not seen the Adam project, by the way. I saw, I've seen bits and pieces of it. Um, and he looked phenomenal in that film from just the small tidbits that I've seen that, that movie also has Mark Ruffalo and Ryan Reynolds. And he held his own from what I was, from what I had seen. I think I've seen 40 minutes of it. it and that was just in passing. I, my family was watching it. And I was busy. But it looks like like this kid, he's found the mojo. Whatever it is in Hollywood that all that like dozens and dozens, if not thousands, of people try to find. This kid's got it. Good. So I'm I'm actually very you know, excited. Uh, I think that first Lightning Thief movie they put out. Uh, what year would that have been? Like 2010 or something? Around that time, yeah. I was in like middle school. If I looked it up right now on Rotten Tomatoes, they'd put that movie at like probably thirty-five percent. I would, I would give you an under on that. Okay, let's let's see. They've got it at. I'd give it twenty-seven. Because it just wasn't a good film. Forty-nine percent tomato meter, fifty-three percent metric audience score. Really. Yeah, well, here's the thing. I love it. I love the movie. I went back and watched it the other day. I should say I loved it. I went back and tried to rewatch it the other day <laughs> on Disney+. Plus. I got 15 minutes in. The Minotaur was uh, was closing in on old Percy as he approached the gates of Camp Half-Blood, and I said, I'm done. I'm watching something else. I'm going to put The Simpsons on or something. <laughs> this is a stupid movie. As a kid, I probably watched that. 
that movie. I had it on DVD, so we're talking maybe like twelve plus times. I've seen it quite a few times. And you know what's unfortunate? I can't think of the of the guy that played Percy Jackson. But if he hadn't have left, they would have continued popping those movies out. Yeah, Logan Learman. Logan he's, Learman. He's got some pizzazz. He's got some pizzazz. Everyone's seen the perks of being a wallflower. Oh yeah. And, um, you know that's that is actually continue your thought, but that does bring us to another. Uh, a, another bit of news that came out recently that I actually forgot to put on the doc, but continue continue talking about Logan Learman. Well, I'd have to I'd have to get a good memory jog to see what else he's been in. Um, let's take a look here. Well, Logan Learman, Percy Bing Wallflower, um, and Percy Jackson. Fantastic, fantastic. Into Yuma, that's a great western. Yeah, he's been in. He's been in all. He was. He was the kid in Hoot. What? If anyone has seen, yeah, it was Logan Learman. Which character? In character. In Hooked, the Robin Williams take on Peter Pan. And Peter Pan. Wow. Very cool. So anyway, cool I I found the information that I was hunting for and the, it, this does add into the to the bit of news that we uh that we're covering here today. Speaking of perks of being wallflower, a wallflower, Ezra Miller has gotten himself into oh. so so much trouble. Um uh you know they they should know. They they should know. You, after maybe like the whole Chris Rock thing and the whole Will Smith thing, I don't know what happened before or after that. You can't do anything shady if you want to be a movie star. Right. You just can't. Like, I I don't know, Ezra. I don't know so, what you're trying to do out here. For those of you that don't Actually, know, I'm lying. I don't even know what happened. For, okay, so for for you and the, all those oh the rest of you that don't know, um. Ezra Miller was in Hawaii, and he was arrested at a bar for threatening people. And it makes me, it makes me chuckle because the reason he got mad was because they were singing karaoke, and uh, I guess he didn't like the song, and um, he decided to get aggressive, and he was arrested. So he he gets thrown in jail, and he he gets out that night, and. Afterwards, he goes to this same couple, the same couple that was singing karaoke. He goes to their house. Um, let me see here. What? Let me finish. He, because if I remember correctly, he broke into their house and threatened pulled to up kill to their them. house. Yeah, yeah. He he broke. What? Let me see. And I mean, the other things I'm reading too. This is from the Rolling Stone. The link will be in the description, or you know, wherever you're listening to this, whether it's on Spotify, YouTube, the link will be there for you that wants to read it yourself. Um, cause I'm just, I'm reading this, but I'm skimming it from what I had read prior trying to just remember. Um, but yeah, he broke into their house and he threatened to, to beat them. And this couple was terrified cause he was wealthy that he would try to finish the job. So yeah, it's, uh, he was then subsequently arrested again. And what's what's really worse that what makes this worse is that this isn't the first time he's been in a bar and tried to beat people up. Um, in I think it was Iceland, he also had a similar case, but that one was dropped. He like they like essentially choke slammed a woman in the bar. I'd like to see Ezra Miller. 
try to pull up on me in a bar Friday <laughs> night out of Richmond. No, it it so he according to the Rolling Stones, one insider from uh, from Warner Brothers said he even on set he was he was prone to frequent meltdowns. Quote, and he uh, he would lose it all the time. So I mean, I the DCEU is already is in a state of flux. Like, I don't know if it, what were you saying? I don't know if it makes me like him more or less. I it it's starting to sound like I would be great friends with Ezra Miller. Yeah. So, the rails those are the kinds of people i generally hang out with all my friends are some, some wild dudes so and you know that's fine as goes long out as to, they're not assaulting people on the street they do that too it's fine uh everyone goes home at the end of the day and it's just a good laugh when you wake up the next morning but just going out to ezra miller if you know whatever platform you may be listening to this ezra you can come hang out with me anytime you want because i'm trying to see some of your antics I promise you he will probably take you up on that because uh from the looks of it he's not got many friends left and um on this from the cinematic point of view there will never be another Ezra Miller flash if I if I had to to guess um like I was saying the DCEU is already in flux so much that it will not happen yeah I think I think that they're just going to go with a uh find the best story arc and screw the whole extended universe thing and just make movies until they can't anymore so that means no more Ezra Miller Flash. Um, I've also heard they should make. Uh, I think they should make this uh, Walker Scobell the new Flash. Oh yeah, there you go. When he when he gets a little bit older, oh, after after years of success on the Percy Jackson series, he can just he can become the Flash. And honestly, I I'm not completely against that. All right, who said anything about technical difficulties? I sure didn't say anything about technical difficulties, did I, Cole? Wasn't me. See, that's what I'm saying, and we didn't completely move apps so that we could sound and hear each other better. You know what I mean? Um, so now, a fun fact: Twin Peaks, the movie, okay, came yes. out 32 years ago this month. I don't know which day, but it did, but it is now 32 years old, which is astronomically insane because it's a good movie. Have you ever seen Twin Peaks? I've not seen the movie, but I've seen the series. It's great. I've not see. I'm in reverse. I've seen the movie, not seen the series. Oh, you gotta see it, man. See, I, I'm the world's worst with series. Like that's the thing is that like I love movies, but the second that I have to commit to something that's an hour long and there's like three seasons of them that are like 15 episodes each, I just get intimidated, and I'm like, I don't have the time for this. I've always found that the title of the Twin Peaks film, "Firewalk with Me," "Firewalk with Me," that's such a poignant title. It's so cool. I wish I so specific. I wish I had thought of it um, <laughs> before uh, Lynch did in the nineties. Right, right. Which before you were born. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Same here. So, but anyway, that is a fun fact. But here is the even more entertaining fact, and I think the more astronomically insane news of today. Film Twitter has been a buzz. On the 14th of this month, which is this Thursday, the Canaz Film Festival will unveil their list of films that they will be showing during their run. In one of those, they have said that a legendary film and TV director will be showing their new film, i.e. why David Lynch's name has been floating around the ether ever since. When was the last David, Fil David Finch film when when did that come Finch, out Lynch. 
Sorry, David Lynch. No, you're good. You're good. You're good. It's an easy. It's an easy mistake because one's Fincher and the other's Lynch, and they're so similar. Um, yeah. 2016's or 2006's, sorry, 2006's Inland Empire was the last David Lynch film to be released. Wow. Yeah, 16 years ago. I've not delved into fin- Finch. Finch. Lynch. Man, Lynch. It's this okay. is cursed. No, it's <laughs> this segment's cursed. No, it's okay. Man. It's okay. Shh. They don't know that. Shh. Um, <laughs> it's okay. And listen. I I have only a little bit like like what you said like like I I haven't really I've, like I liked the movie Twin Peaks. Um, what else did he, he did? Eraserhead, if I'm not mistaken, and that was a really I've seen that. That yeah. was a, that's a movie. Um, that's a great movie. Um, and so like yeah, it's just like he's just such an artist, you know. He's just so good at what he does, and so the, the any anything David Lynch just makes me so excited. Uh, have you seen Mulholland Drive? No, I haven't. I haven't either. Why do we have a film podcast without either of us having seen Mulholland Drive? See, here's the thing. Um, I love cinema, and I'm actively becoming a cinemaphile, and I'm yet to be fully convert or uh, uh, assimilated. So, Right. I'm in the same position. Here we the are. exact same position. So we are growing cinemaphiles. Exactly, which is amazing because that means that the people listening at home can watch us grow and you know hopefully enjoy our banter back and forth as we – you know, and maybe have our disagreements down the line. Maybe they can relate to us as well maybe, because yeah. we we haven't seen every uh, quintessential film, every essential film, should say in in the the cinema cinematographic canon. Exactly. Um. Yeah. So we're we're growing along with you. And there's so much. There's so much that this will never end. There's just never going to be an end to the amount of content that this podcast can cover. Right, we will never have seen every great film. Exactly. Um, Billy Ray Cyrus is in Mulholland Drive. Interesting. I never would have imagined Billy Ray Cyrus, or what was his name now? Is it just Cyrus? Do Did I, he change it? Do I, he just goes by one name now, Cyrus. Do, do I remember that pop culture thing that happened not that long ago correctly? Is he just now Cyrus? You know, I don't know, but honestly, I don't think so. I highly doubt that. Let's let's give it a. Uh, that's exactly what I'm doing right now. In April 2017, Cyrus told Rolling Stone Country that on his birthday he would be known as Cyrus or the artist formerly known as Billy Ray after legally changing his name. Right, he is just Cyrus. According now. to Wikipedia, so take that as you will. But that is, I just love the canon of Billy Ray Cyrus or Cyrus, excuse me. You know, I think the only thing I've ever seen him act in is uh. Hannah Montana. <laughs> I'm in the same right. boat. That's the, well, the point that I was trying to make is that Cyrus. It's weird to think that he is in a David Lynch film. Right. It's very odd because, like, maybe to other generations he's some kind of heartthrob, but to my generation he is a meme. He is a joke. Yeah, yeah. He's like Kid Rock. Like, no, we don't really true. mess with him. Right? Exactly. Very factual. So on to our next bit of information. This is this one was really interesting to me because I particularly enjoyed these two movies. Take that as you will. But Robert Downey Jr. is set to head or produce some sort of Sherlock Holmes TV project for HBO Max. Nobody really knows what his role will be in terms of acting, if it's going to be in the same universe as his, if he's going to be Sherlock, or if he's just going to be the, the guy that's creating his own version separate from what he portrayed in his uh, I think two movies. It's not just. It's not three, right? It's just two. It's just two. Yeah. Right, so I'm remembering correctly. Okay, yeah. 
So what do you think about this Robert Downey Jr.-led Sherlock Holmes project? I just think that every Sherlock Holmes project that I've seen that's gained massive amounts of popularity, um, both the Benedict Cumberbatch and uh, the Robert Downey Jr., it's not the character. It's not they, They're not portraying Sherlock Holmes. They're portraying the idea of Sherlock Holmes that people have, right, that the common man has and the zeitgeist of of their cultural mindset i mean if you've read a sherlock holmes uh you know one of the short stories by arthur conan doyle he's stoic sherlock holmes is very stoic he doesn't he doesn't engage in banter or funny quips with watson or you know whoever else might be with him it it's much more serious and real detective heavy stuff so Am I interested in seeing this? Maybe not. I I I like John C. Riley though. If he's if he's involved, he's actually proved himself to be um, a, a phenomenal actor. He was in The Lobster. He was in uh, uh, the Dewey Cox story, which is you know, he was the star of that, and that's one of my favorite comedy movies of all time. It's hilarious. He's been in. A, a few more dramatic roles other than the lobster and he's uh he's fantastic robert downey jr everything he touches is gold and i think that can go without saying so maybe it maybe it will be good right and and see here's the thing i, I have seen a little bit of sherlock i have to finish it um speaking of tv shows i i don't think there's topping benedict cumberbatches but here's the thing i i feel like that iteration of sherlock holmes is Cumberbatch is, it feels more like, have you ever seen Doctor Who? Yeah, a little bit. That is, so that is one of my all-time favorite shows. Like, I, I religiously watch it when they come out with new episodes. I know, like, like, I know I just said all about what I said about TV shows not that long ago. Doctor Who is an exception. I love that show. And it, we, it's weird because, like, after watching the, the new Who, the, from the 2005 and, and to today, and all those iterations, it felt like Cumberbatch's iteration of sherlock was more like the doctor than it was sherlock does that make sense it makes a lot of sense yeah like like but like in the same vein i don't like it's weird because like after watching the first season or so of sherlock with benedict cumberbatch and then having gone back and rewatched the robert downey jr like robert's portrayal is weird to me like i like those movies but like after seeing like benedict kind of usurp and place himself on the like in my mind the sherlock holmes like, I don't want to see Robert step back in those shoes, and I want to see a different take on the character. Right, yeah. it's It's been done in, you know, it's been redone and done in a different way that, um, you know, goes against the grain of the character for so long. I'm ready to see uh, a popular, um, tr- a popular iteration of Sherlock Holmes that's true to form. Exactly. No, I completely agree. And they've made hundreds hundreds of them i mean think about how many sherlock holmes productions that the bbc has put on over the years these these are just the the blockbuster or the the wildly popular iterations of the character from comedy to legit like like crime true crime-esque um there's so many like if i'm not mistaken didn't will ferrell play his own version with john c Riley? Is that what you were really? discussing earlier? That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, I'm not even talking about 
I'm not even talking about Robert Downey. I'm talking about Will Ferrell. Who wants to see that? That's awful. No, I'm saying that was a real. That was a very bad movie. But like, like to to credence what you're saying, there's been so many Sherlock's. Yeah, that movie was like slapstick comedy. Yeah, it's just not. It wasn't very good. Um, it's so yeah. I think I think our collective agreement is that it'll be interesting to see what he portrays. But if it's the same as it has been, then it's just going to be boring. You know the detective genre. Um, I haven't really, uh, I haven't really seen it get a good kick in the pants in the past uh, few years. Knives Out, insanely popular and rightfully so. Love that movie. But yeah, uh, I, I can't think of any more real um, shifts in form that the detective genre has had. I'm sure there have been, but I have not seen them. Right. And um, I think I think that's a good note to leave off of because, like, I'm very soon on this we'll be talking about Knives Out two and all the other projects that are coming up. Moving along, the Crow reboot, directed by Rupert Sanders, has found its Eric Davin, the guy that is finally filling in that role that has been left so wide open since the unfortunate death of Brandon Lee. And it's Bill Skarsgård, of all people. What do you think of this casting? Ooh, yeah, let's do some Skarsgård. I'm, I'm all about that. He's going to make a perfect crow. I completely agree. Perfect. I think it's yeah, a phenomenal he, he has casting. The, yeah, he has the facial manipulation skills of, you know, Jim Carrey. Oh, yes. Yeah. Like, he is, yeah, his face is like a rubber mask that he can manipulate. Like, every into... time I see Bill Skarsgård, like, it's like, like you said, the rubber mask, like, it's almost like a visceral experience. Like, like, you watch him, and you just, like, he, you'd say his face is like rubber, but he's like, he just, like, metamorphosizes into the character. And it's, it's like, the only, you said Jim Carrey, I don't think I've seen, like, I don't even think Jim Carrey has that kind of, that, like, that, whatever it is, I don't even know what correct term to call it but like it's going to be really interesting to see um how Skarsgård can uh transform himself yet again i think the only person that i that comes to mind is like um christian bale and his body transformations throughout the years oh yeah oh yeah so yeah i'm very excited you know not the biggest pro guy not the biggest pro guy and maybe i should be but i don't get the appeal and i love gothic yeah. I love I love horror. I love everything like that. I love anything dark. But the crow almost gives me I have the same feelings about the crow as I do the first blade movie. Really? Yeah, it's it's a bit over the top. I hate to say it, and it, it it's a bit cheesy. Well, as is most if not all pre-2008 superhero films. Especially right. especially like anti-hero. Yeah. Oh yeah, so uh, maybe I'm giving it uh, too much flack where that might not be due, but I'm always gonna pass on a crow movie. But now that you've told me that Skarsgård is uh, gonna be uh, be the new uh, Eric Draven, then maybe um, maybe I'll see it. Yeah, I, I am. I think that my only concern with with this movie is um and not not to question rupert rupert sanders as director because like i i mean i get obviously him to have the name director he's got to have a lot of skill but looking at the movies he's done he did snow white and the huntsman which which is a i mean it's an all right film um it's 
it's pretty i don't want to say forgettable but like it's not one that you would think like when you see it on his resume you're not jumping off the page to be like oh my gosh i want that guy um and then the other one he did that is like first of when you look him up is ghost in the shell and that movie was awful ghost in the shell yeah if i remember correctly was it that the one i'm thinking of i know he directed that is it exactly what let's see ghost in the shell Oh yeah, that movie. That one was the one where, where they like yeah, Scarlett Johansson and yeah 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 yeah. Oh, I mean, I'm hey, listen, man, I don't know because there, I mean, there's some scenes in that where Scarlett has no clothes on. Yeah, and I, I'm all about that. I yeah, I mean, I understand, but that that doesn't make the movie. There are movies for that reason, but not this one. Um, They're known known under a different name. Yeah, much different, and we do not cover that. Um. But, like I said, Ghost in the Shell was not very good, um, in my opinion. And so, like, I, I, it is written by Zach Balin, who did King Richard, the uh, the movie that got Will Smith his Oscar nominee, or Oscar win, I should say. So, it, it's, I think the writing and the casting will be what saves it, but I, I'm interested to see if it, how Rupert Sanders will add his flair. Because the two movies that, that like, jump, like, his two biggest productions, neither one of them are, like, Huge on my book, if that makes sense. Well, have you uh, have you ever read the things they carried? Yes, I have actually. Yeah, well, Rupert Sanders. Uh, there's a there's a movie for the things they carried, directed by Sanders, and it's in pre production right now. Um, interesting. Some of the some of the actors in the film. Let me list them off. You got as the lead or the you know the top build right now is angus cloud who played fezco in euphoria mm-hmm. um he's he's great he's fantastic he's so likable you can't you can't dislike him ty sheridan i didn't know who that was but he's actually the lead in ready player one which i love that it's a pretty good movie yeah. it's steven spielberg i love steven spielberg i have my own take on him but right. i'll save that for the month of spielberg whenever that happens i think we both like spielberg a lot we do pete davidson is also <laughs> it's going to be in, in The Things They Carried. <laughs> yeah, I mean, The Things They Carried is, I mean, it's an interesting book, and there's certainly humor in the book. Right. Well, But for, it, this is a dramatic film. For, for those that have never read The Things They Carried, number one, you should read it. Um, and two, it's a, it's very interesting because it's actually a collection of short stories. Um, and, and they're not really told in any particular order. But I think what's the most interesting part is that it's written – so the story is based in Vietnam, and the, the, the author and the, the main character are, have the same name, but the author has gone on record and said that they're not the same person. So when you're reading it, you, you get this feeling that they're, they're firsthand events, but, you, but the author himself had said – and I can't think of the author's name. Um, I actually looked it up real quick, but the author has said that that's not – I imagine that there's, some, that there's a lot of inspiration from these stories. Um, but like it's super like at times gory. Tim O'Brien is the author's name. It's it, right. it is funny um, at times, and it's it's really sad because like while I said that they're they're out of order, there there is some sort of like storyline. So it is like it's very much worth reading. But it's it's really sad because you follow this this uh, platoon as they tra- traverse the uh, Vietnamese wilderness and and fight in the Vietnam War, and it, it it's 
great, great book. And so you you bring up like the fact that they're making a movie. Number one, my first thought when you said that was how are they going to pull that off? Because they they're they're going to have to make some sort of central story because there's so much going on, right? Well, they'll probably do what they did with uh, World War Z, and um, just center it around one of the the stories, one of the anthologies I, in the greater work. I feel like that will ruin like that will ruin the story. Yeah, yeah, because I mean, the effect, the whole effect of the things they carry is meant to be that you know these are all these are stories that are taking place apart from one another, but there's some such a level of connectivity between them exactly and like like some like some of the stories it's so human and it's so sad and it's so like so if if they do that i will probably i will not probably i will very much so be angry with this but i'm still very interested to see so who knows maybe this is sanders um like this movie the crow reboot and the things they carried maybe this is going to be what propels him to director stardom hood and I will change everything I've said, and then the the Snow White and the Huntsman and the Ghost in the Show will just be smudges on an otherwise gleaming record. Couldn't couldn't have said it better myself. So moving on, another uh, interesting casting, and I, I'm very in, interested to see what you think about this. Vin Diesel on Instagram of all places announces the next star to take their role, their take their their foothold in the mantle of the Fast and Furious franchise in Captain Marvel herself, Brie Larson. Free Larson! Free <laughs> Larson! What? <laughs> she's going to be the lead? She's, she's going to be one of... She's in the family. Oh, no. I don't, I don't know Larson. if she's... Obviously, it's, a Vin, it's Vin Diesel, so it's, he, she, she's not going to be the lead, but like she's going to be one of the central characters, apparently. I'm never happy to see Brie Larson. I'm never like, oh yes, Brie Larson. Explain, explain I'm yourself. I'm so excited. Explain yourself. Like why? Go deeper. Uh, oh, maybe, maybe I'm just throwing these claims out. I don't have anything to back them up. Um, I'm looking at her films, and she's been in every movie that's come out since like 2010. Every film. She's been in um, a lot of them. That's for sure. A lot of good ones. Maybe I, maybe I just don't like Captain Marvel. Maybe that was uh. Maybe that was the only thing that I disliked. I don't even mind her in Endgame, Infinity War. I mean, she's not in Infinity War, but see, it, see, yeah. here's I don't I don't have a strong gripe against Brie Larson. I mean, uh, uh, like there was that gossip that she's hard to work with. There's nothing, no, nothing to prove that because no one said anything. Um, so like I I'm not gonna say that that's why. Like I don't dislike her. I don't really have any strong feelings for or against her. Um, I I. I'm not going to say I loved Captain Marvel, but I felt like it was just kind of your average superhero flick. Um, just average, yeah. yeah um, I would say it's less than average. It's it's not a compelling story. I, I didn't say the film itself was average. I said the story itself was average. Um, mm. Make that distinction. I, I'm not the biggest fan of it, but like I, I don't dislike Captain Marvel. Like I don't dislike Brie Larson. I just feel like this, the writing for that was kind of bland. Um, yeah, they, they made some decisions with... Uh, Sort of like the power scaling of Captain Marvel that yeah. don't really make too much sense in the greater universe of the MCU, but you know, See, I'm, I'm... tomato tomato. So in in the announcement that Vin Diesel posted to his personal Instagram account, I, I'm not gonna read verbatim what he said, but it's very uh, it's kind of cringy. He uh, it's a picture of him and in 
Larson laughing, and he says he calls her an angel. Um, and talks about the love and laughter, and uh, talk about the mythology of the Fast and Furious franchise, and talks about how she's beautiful and smart, and how she's in the family. And that it's it. I mean, like it. That's I just essentially summed up for to you what he said. And like I said, it makes me cringe. But as much as I want the Fast Furious, Fast and Furious franchise to just die, because like after the first two, it just became the same movie um, until they went to space. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I I'm not a Fast and Furious fan, and I yeah, never I never will be. But um, I'm never happy. was, never will be, man. I'm happy for Brie Larson. Um, I'm happy for Vin Diesel that he can keep finding these people that will be in his movies. Um, Jason Momoa is the villain in the next Fast and Furious movie, Fast Ten. Um, Ooh, ten. Yep, ten. Yep. Which is yeah. Um, this movie franchise has been alive almost as long as I have. I'm pretty sure it came out in like '01, so I was alive before it. And in the 22 years, or well, I will be 22 this year, but in the 21 years or so it's been around, they have popped out going to be ten of them. Which is insane. Ten, ten movies. It. What well, I I uh, I lumped the Fast and Furious movies in with like uh, Transformers and like maybe like the GI Joe movies. Oh, please don't say anything bad about Transformers. I have a uh, I have such a childhood love for them <laughs> that they're guilty uh, pleasure. I just think well, don't maybe, don't don't yeah, you well, dare like you lump said, Fast and Furious with Transformers. Yeah, well, in my head, I just think that if you're an adult. And you're like super excited over the next Transformers movie. You're a dunce. I'm not gonna say I get super excited, but my the inner ten year old in me does enjoy seeing a new one. Okay, I mean that's fair. Like, I like a lot of really bad stuff, so we'll agree to disagree. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. And on that note, we'll move on to the next segment. Um, or well, not next segment. Next tidbit of information: Zack Snyder has a new Netflix film that's in production coming out called Rebel Moon. It recently added Carrie Elwes, El- Elwes? Ooze? I can't pronounce names, and I'm sorry. Carrie Stoll and Mikael Usman, as well as Alfonso Herrera. So I, I'm not really big on any of What's them. What's it about? So interesting you ask. Snyder came up with this film concept, and he wanted it to be a Star Wars film. He pitched it to George Lucas, and then George Lucas sold... Star Wars to Disney, and any Zack Snyder-led Star Wars film went out the window. So keep that in mind when I'm telling you the synopsis. The film is basically about your peaceful colony on the outskirts of a galaxy of some sort, and then this other very angry group of aliens shows up named Regent Balisarius, and they decide no longer shall you be peaceful, and they just start attacking. So in turn, the galaxy sends a young woman... To gather up as many, an army of as many alien races as, as she can find to fight this Regent Bel, Bel- Isarius, sorry. But also, her past is very secretive, so we don't know where she comes from. She's just sent because of whatever, and so we learn that throughout the story. If you can't tell from me being very cynical, I do not think this movie has much promise. I'm not a big Zack Snyder guy. Um, like I'll be looking real. at the screen caps. It looks epic, truly epic. But you know, I'm gonna see. It. I'll watch it in the theater. None of the actors I have really heard of. 
Um, but I'm always down for a nice space opera. Um, always down. See, that will be what saves and, it. That will genuinely be what saves it. Yeah, sci-fi epics. Um, yeah, they're often bad, but even the the mediocre of them are still uh, an entertaining watch, in my opinion. Yeah, so, I, I googled it, and the first thing I see is uh, Rebel Moon, reportedly a two-part epic from Screen Rant. Ooh. So hopefully, well, I mean, <clears throat> Zack Snyder's picked up so much, uh, so much you know so much of a fan base over the past couple of years understandably um, so like understandably like he's oh like, yeah oh yeah i get it for sure zach snyder's great like I, there there are some movies that i really like from him but oftentimes they're not like this is probably going to get a lot of hate but i do not care because this is how i view it i view zach snyder in the same breath and vein that i view michael bay when they come out with good movies their movies are pretty good i do think zach snyder's a lot better than michael bay let me make that distinction but when they come out with just movies, like they come out with so many movies that they are, that most, if not, I shouldn't say it like that, 60% of their movies are going to be bad. I'll just say it. Okay. Like Army of the Dead that came out last year that got all those views, I thought it was trash. I saw it in the theater. I saw it in the theater. I thought it was I awful. I didn't like it at all. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, I thought it was awful. Like, you look at the other ones, like he did Batman vs. Superman. An awful movie. We put it, we literally discussed it earlier. It's on the list of like highest or the largest drop in its second week of being around. So like, it's, it's like, I mean, his, I won't blame him for justice league, not his fault. Like I have gripes with man of steel. I like that movie, but like, I felt like the story died three way, three fourths of the way through. And then it, you know, went through this weird lull and then it fixed itself. You know what I mean? So like, I don't know. Like, obviously, you got Watchmen 300. Um, I'll th- yeah, I mean, come on. Yeah, like... I'm- Watchmen? Watchmen. That's that's not, like... That's not just a good movie. That's a great movie. No, I, I love Watchmen. I do. Like, that's... Like, like like I, I like Wonder Woman was pretty good. Um, I don't think he directed, but I do think he was a producer. Um, like, there... Like, he's... Like, he comes out with good stuff sometimes. Like, I think his Snyder Cut of the Justice League was really good. But... He's Michael Bay. That's exactly like that's what I'm saying. Like, like I, I just feel like he comes out with so many bad ones that when his good ones come out, like I want to roll my eyes because like they all look the same. Like, like he's got such a distinct look that it's sometimes it gets hard to for me looking on the outside for me to distinguish what will be good and bad because he's come out with so many bad ones. And and another thing too, just a personal tidbit, I'm a big practical effects guy, and Zack Snyder could not be further from the practical effects. It's it's all CGI. That's what I'm saying. And so, like, I think that that, like, is just a bias I have, and I apologize. But, like, I just – I'm not a big CGI guy. If CGI is used correctly, I enjoy it. But, like, I'm huge in practical effects. I love Christopher Nolan. I love uh, Stanley Kubrick. Um, and so, like, when I see a Zack Snyder film, a lot of the times I just get sickened by how much CGI he has, even if the story is really good. Like, <clears throat> I love 300. Sometimes the CGI in that movie made me cringe. Yeah, well, three hundred's an old movie. That's I know it's thing. old. I know, I know. But like you, like I feel like there could have been more in terms of practical to have made that more attainable. And a lot of times, right. these these production companies will spend more money for CGI than they would have done it practical. And practical always looks better. Always, without a doubt. So like, I do think though that in the Snyder cut of Justice League, Steppenwolf is one of the best CGI villains. That yeah. I've ever seen. That's that that I mean, there are obvious differences. Like there there are there are little tidbits that are really good. I like Steppenwolf. He was he was awesome. 
like like i said i really liked the snyder cut of the justice league it actually did the movie like it was well it was very well made but yeah i i um i i like sci-fi epics like i said i love 2001 a space odyssey i'm a huge star wars guy um so i i like these like you said sci-fi epics i think that that was a the perfect way to to distinguish what he's trying to make i just i don't know if i trust Zack snyder kind of finicky isn't it? like just imagine if michael bay got a hold of a star wars film oh yeah it would be a, a trailer part that's what i'm saying so like that's kind of how like that's my worry is that like like i'm happy zack snyder's not doing star wars but the fact that he's trying to make this saga i don't know what it will turn into who's your dream star wars director oh well i don't think i don't think it has to be a dream because it's he's already doing it dave filoni is so good at what he's Dave Filoni, yeah like that that's like i don't think there is no one that i can say that would be any better than him he just knows Star Wars far, far greater than anyone else. And I, this thought just come to my head. It's not something I've thought of before, but um, I would be like, I want, just because Star Wars is such a hodgepodge of anything and everything, I want to see a Star Wars horror film. I don't know why. I just want to see what that would look like. And we're going to talk a lot more about him, but can you imagine a Robert Eggers Star Wars horror film? I could see it. Um... For some reason, the only thing that comes to my mind are like an Ewok horror film. An Ewok. Don't know why. <laughs> I was thinking like, um, like something with the Wookies. Yeah, the Wookies are the pro- the Wookies on Kashyyyk are the protagonists. And, yeah, uh, like I'm thinking like Bosks is- Bosks species. Uh, can't remember what they're called for the life of me. The lizard men have come to uh to collect their hides. Right, like I'm thinking post Revenge of the Sith. At, like as like they're trying to stop from being genis you know just getting completely massacred from the stormtroopers like that i think that that would be interesting to see what someone like a robert eggers would do um but we're going to move on because i'm sure that a lot of people are cringing right now with the thought <laughs> with the thought of what we're doing we're just daydreaming um yeah the last the last tidbit of news that we have and is, this one will go by pretty quickly beverly hills cop 4 has been announced Ooh. Returning Eddie Murphy after in the the last time that, that Agent Foley graced our screens was with the third installment in 1994. Twenty wow. eight years ago, we <coughs> we got the worst installment. It's an awful movie. Really I didn't know there three. was a third one. I didn't know it existed. See, yeah, it's very bad, and that's like like I I enjoyed the first one, and then I don't even I don't even remember the second one. It's been like like I've just it's kind of one of those things that you watch growing up. Um, and then I, I really, really liked that first one, though. I remember the third one being a thing, and I just remembered hating it. So, like, I, I don't know. Like, if I feel like a, a project that has director turnover before it's even begun production is is doomed to fail. And that's exactly what's happened with Beverly Hills Cop Four. So originally, the directing duo of oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher these, and I'm sorry. Adil L. Arby and Bilal Fala were set to direct, and then they left for Warner Brothers Batgirl. Ooh. So they Ooh. now have dubbed Mark Malloy be the next director to head this project. And uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of Mark Malloy, because I didn't before this. And he he's not got a really strong track record. Like he's he's very very like new. I would say I, I don't want to call him new. He doesn't have 
a big filmography? What uh, what's he done? It it's so hard. Like when you look him up, he doesn't even have like a film thing, like like a like a list of films. In nineteen, he did Apple at Work, The Understudy. Or sorry, not the understudy. The underdog is my bad. Uh, he did Go Daddy, Tattoo Shop, Nissan, Nissan Shoulders of Giants. I think these are commercials. I don't He's know. done commercials. He makes car commercials. I think, yeah, I think. Well, I mean, no, it says a short. It might be like just a short film done for these places, and so like, but that's all he's done, and so I, I just don't know what this will turn into. I doubt it will even grace um, the eyes of anyone who has a real taste in film. Nobody's going to watch that. Beverly Hills Cop 4. Yeah, I, just, I just feel bad because Eddie Murphy, man. Man, I'll tell you what. I, I don't know much about Eddie Murphy. I mean, who, how, how could you not? I've seen uh, tons. The ones that I really like. Trading Places, Beverly Hills Cop, Coming to America. Those are like the classic three. Um, Eddie Murphy's stand-up specials from when he was like 21, right? They're hilarious. You had Raw, you had Delirious, you had one more as well. Yeah, that, man. That, that I'm a big comedy fan, right? I love stand-up, and I know a lot about stand-up. And uh, those are those probably both fit into my top five. Uh, mm-hmm. like stand-up specials of all time. They're so funny. They're so funny. Oh, no, they're good, yeah. And, yeah, I just, like I said, like, for those reasons, like those comedy specials and just, I think, obviously, Shrek, you can't go on without Shrek and Eddie Murphy. And it's just like, I, I don't know, he's not been in the limelight a lot lately, and I just, I want to see him have, if, if this is it, if this is the last we see of Eddie Murphy before he calls it a career, I want it to be good. Uh, he'll he'll be he'll be around he'll be around forever man eddie murphy he can't die i hope not but you know and he'll that, always have a fan base that's uh that's the end of our our news for this week of cinema um anything else you want to add i mean we have some interesting little i got one more interesting note if you want to go over that before we move on to the lighthouse breakdown and whatever let's go ahead with what you have to say so mads mickelson i love that man He's one of the, I think I, I dub him as one of the best actors in the world today. I would agree. He was recently asked his thoughts on method acting, and you you shared your opinion on Jared Leto. And Jared Leto is very well known for his method acting. In fact, known to t- go too far with his method acting, I would say. Yeah, he's a weird guy. He's a creep. I don't like him. Mads Mikkelsen called method acting BS, straight up. He said, and I don't have the quote pulled up, but he essentially said... How can you give yourself to a film like that and it be bad? <laughs> and he's like, if, he's like, then how? And then it's, he said something to the effect of, then how did you stay with it? Why'd you commit that much? And he, and coming from one of the best actors in the world, as I just said, I, I can't help but take his word for it because we've heard a lot about method acting, especially in the last fifteen years. Um, I would say with the death of Heath Ledger, right. And uh, Daniel Day Lewis is a big name when you think of method acting. Exactly, um, he might be the one that actually pulls it off the best because Daniel Day Lewis, I would put him up there with Mads Mikkelsen as being one of the best actors of all time. Right. And so it's just, so 
Sorry, go ahead. Go on. No, no, you go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say we've seen how it works. We've seen when it works. Mm -hmm. And we've also seen when it doesn't work, when it's just weird and it turns people off. Right. And and I think the point I was going to make is that, like, to Mad's credit, and I think this is kind of what he's trying to get through to people. If it's a bad movie, right, like, it's just like, like, it is Jared Leto in The Suicide Squad. What was all that work for? Living up to be that character just for people to say that you were awful? Like, I feel like that takes a toll on somebody. And I think at some point while you're, like, preparing to be the Joker and you're, like, eating glass and, uh, like, drinking kerosene or, like, whatever he Sending probably had to do. I don't know. letters to your coworkers. Yeah, cutting off toes and ears and whatever he was up to. At some point, you know, in your six month journey of, you know, transformation, you're going to realize, Hey, this isn't a good script. This isn't a good character. Mm-hmm. Like, I completely agree. We could talk about Joker stuff all day. I, truly. I agree. But looking at our timer here, we've been going on pretty long about movie stuff. So now it's time to actually sit down, focus on one piece of cinema and art. That is the next segment. Tell our people what it's about. The lighthouse, Robert, Eggers' second film, The Lighthouse, it is one of the greatest pieces of gothic fiction that I've ever seen or read. So a lot of people like it. A lot of people sing its praises, and rightfully so. So The Lighthouse, how do we describe it? I'm, I want you to go over the synopsis. I want you to give your take on the story as best as you can um, in however long it takes you. Go. Okay, um, I, I'm up for the job, sure. So it is the late 1800s. It's New England. Waves are crashing all around. And a young man named Ephraim Winslow is a, a new lighthouse keeper. It is his first job as a wiki, as they're called in the film. And he is under the watching eye of Thomas Wake, who is an old man played by Willem Dafoe, and he is a sea veteran. He was a sailor for years and years, but he walks with a limp now. He has a wooden leg and states that life as a wiki or a lighthouse keeper better suits his disability so he can no longer live at sea. But he's obsessed with the sea, and he is called to the sea, as he states many times. And he speaks like a caricature of 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 a sailor um everything everything every line almost that he has somehow involves the sea so wake he does a lot of he, he's an he's a gross man he's a disgusting man he farts and he talks in his sleep and he's he's just nasty and robert pattinson is disgusted by him um in the the beginnings of the film um so throughout uh, Robert Pattinson's employment there, Wake gives him a, a massive, a massive amount of work to do. He works from daylight to dusk in extremely physically strenuous tasks, right? He, I mean, he is, he's working like a dog, right? While Wake sort of uh, lays around and, or, you know, stands around and yells at him. So you have, from the very beginning, you have a real power dynamic 
and um, some some real uh, real hatred brewing, right? So, um, Wake uh, Willem Dafoe's character, he he mentions that the last wiki or the last um, you know you know caretaker oh, of the, hand, yes. the last yeah the second hand the last second hand had gone crazy and was raving about sea creatures and mermaids and all these different supernatural uh entities and um he had to be fired we later find out that well what actually happened to the the last wiki you can go ahead and explain that yeah and that's all that's up for debate um I think another, I think to continue to pick up where you were, what you were put down to keep this thing rolling is a lot of weird stuff starts happening. See, from the very get go, when Robert Pattinson's character finds his bed, he finds a wooden doll of a mermaid or a siren. And that becomes a really key piece of his character throughout the rest of the film. As like, like Cole had been describing, Wake has just, he talks nonstop, this really old Atlantic sea jargon throughout the film, trying to teach him, uh, teach him, i.e. Robert Pattinson's character, all this stuff. Um, and Pattinson starts seeing really weird imagery. He sees a siren, like, on the side of the beach. At first, he thinks it's just a woman, and when he goes over there and takes the seaweed off of her as she lies on the beach side, he, he sees her tail, and he runs away, and a, a bunch of other things. He sees, and he wakes up from a nightmare after seeing Willem Dafoe's character essentially turn into an octopus, um, at the top of the lighthouse, um, it's it's really interesting. And to get to the part that Cole was describing about the former secondhand in one of his states, he goes to find food because they get stranded on this island of this lighthouse. They're supposed to be there for four yeah. weeks. He goes for a lobster trap. Yeah, he goes for a lobster trap. Um, after uh, trying to think of the best way to describe this here, in week like eight of their stay. He goes to pull up a lobster trap and he finds a head of a man with no eye as the man that was once the second hand was described to have one eye and the movie progresses from there that's near the end um i think i think we're doing a pretty i don't want to say a poor job of describing this movie but so much goes down so much happens and you have to watch it and i think one thing that we have to point out here is the one-eyed seagull yes absolutely the the seagulls Sorry go, ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, 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 uh, you go ahead. Well, the seagulls in the film are stated by Wake as to be the the souls of dead sailors that have uh, that have passed on, um, or been you know engulfed by the sea. And there is a one-eyed seagull that um, that Robert Pattinson's uh, excellently portrayed character is is taunted by. Um, towards the middle of the film, and um, it's a one-eyed goal that is constantly, uh, constantly there in his in his uh in his gaze. So, upon being worked to the the point of desperation and the point of extreme fatigue, Robert Pattinson's character takes the one-eyed goal and smashes it across a cistern that uh that lies on the island to collect water he 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 kills the the seagull in probably the best acted sequence in the film despite, um you can really see sorry despite willem dafoe's character 
urging him not to kill gulls for the reason said that that the seagulls are the are the the souls of the dead sailors before him, and that killing a gull is very bad. And this is almost stated. This is probably stated three times. Right in the film, up, leading before, up to this point. Right, yeah, it, it's really pushed into the head of uh, Pattinson and both the audience that if you kill a goal, there will be extremely bad luck. Um, and it, it, right after uh, Pattinson's character kills the seagull, a brutal storm begins to uh, begins to come to pass on the island, which is why they can't leave. As right, we just this is described earlier. Yeah, help was supposed to come after a month for Pattinson to, you know, be sent off the island and another second man, Wiki, would be uh, taking his place. But the storm comes and it's so powerful that the, the boat cannot arrive. And really after that moment, like we described how Pattinson was already kind of, he's a loose hinge. He was already kind of mentally not there. After this so-called bad omen occurs where he kills the gull, it just takes his turn. We talked about him seeing the siren. We talked about him kind of seeing things in his dreams and in his sleep. And you just watch as he becomes more and more unhinged. <clears throat> With the movie progressing to, long story short, time kind of escapes. Howard, or his name is, as we learn, Ephraim Winslow is actually the name of the man that the now named Thomas Howard, who is still Robert Pattinson's character, killed in his previous life, and he took the guy's name, or I should say killed, let die is a better term. And he took the name to start a new life, and he confessed, and there was this huge thing from Willem Dafoe about why'd you spill your beans? And it, to be fair, I uh, I would also be very... You know, in an uncomfortable situation, if my uh, the guy I was stuck on an island with confessed to essentially murder, um, but I think now that we have described this movie, because after that, the 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 Defoe's character ends up getting an axe to the skull, and Pattinson walks up to the light, looks into it, laughs, and then falls down the stairs, breaking his leg, and then the movie ends with him being eaten alive by seagulls. I think it's time to get into the theories. Let's do it. So, here's the thing. So <clears throat> much happens, and, and I had my first theory. The second that the, the credits started rolling, I thought it was this, and I thought it was this alone. I felt that the movie, despite its, in our horrible rendition of trying to go over it, I felt that everything we've seen throughout that movie, from from the mermaid to, to Defoe's transformation, to even him seeing... Ephraim Winslow, him being Robert Pattinson's character, seeing the man that he let die around the island, I thought that that was just the psyche of a man breaking. I felt like he was breaking before he got on the island. I felt that him finding this, the, the mermaid doll in his bed to wake Defoe's character, describing how the guy before him went mad, said this, this, and this, and I felt like that kind of geared him towards mentally this state of like, you know, kind of like a product of your surroundings. And that was why he saw what he saw. And it's nothing more than just like superstition and this crazy man who ends up being eaten alive because he, you know, can't find food and he stays outside and the gulls eat him. Plus, he also kills another man. He kills Willem Dafoe's character. We, you know, exactly. This uh, this state of mania has left him to um, 
to commit his second murder of his life. And what can we say? Uh, the real Ephraim Winslow was, uh, he was probably in the same uh, position that uh, Willem Dafoe's character was in. He was a, a boss that was a bit too hard on uh, Robert Pattinson's Howard character. And uh, Pattinson goes crazy because of it. He's, he's not good under pressure and it ends up, you know, turning his brain into, you know, sour patch kids. And he uh, believes that his, uh, he tends to believe that the man that's causing him to work is some sort of, uh, you know, involved in the supernatural somehow. Right. And I think it's interesting that you say that this man has pushed him over the edge. Well, I don't think you're wrong. There are a bunch of other theories that we we're about to get into. So the other theory that that popped up that's very popular is that Howard, i.e. Um, Robert Pattinson, is in purgatory for killing. That's the one I subscribe to. Yeah, and I I think I've come around to that one as well. There are two different lanes in this same theory, though. The first is that obviously, like I just said. Pattinson's in purgatory, and that the one-eyed gull is the one-eyed former secondhand, and everything that you see is just him and his punishment. It's very straightforward, um, and, and I, that's not bad, but I like the second version of this a lot better, and it makes a lot of sense when you, when you look over some of the details. The other one is that both Howard and Wake are the same man. And I feel like... Ooh. There's a lot of lot of information and a lot of detail that proves that correct, and that's the one you just said, the one that you subscribe to. That's where I lie, is that this is the purgatory of one man, hence why they both have the same name. You've got Thomas Wake and Thomas Howard. Um, they both talk about killing a man, or at least mainly Howard, but Howard accuses Wake of killing his former second man. I think one can say that those two people are the or that those people are the same because Willem Dafoe's character there's never ever really evidence other than Pattinson pulling up the head and that could you know you could chuck that up to just being another thing he saw because at that point he had seen so many things. And so you continue down this path like I said their names were the same they both had quote unquote killed a man and this was what really got me. This was the big thing. Throughout the film, Willem Dafoe's character walks with a peg leg. He walks with a limp. He always and always has that leg, and it comes up multiple times. Dafoe himself, his character, had stated multiple different reasons for having the leg, so the audience and Pattinson never really know why he walks with the limp, how he got it, where it came from. And a very interesting detail, I think, that cannot be overlooked. Or, well, two details in one scene. At the very end, when Pattinson is just maniacally laughing in probably one of the most unnerving settings I've seen in a long time, right? One of the most unnerving scenes I've seen in so long. He's laughing into the light, slips, he falls down the, the, the stairwell, back down to the bottom of the lighthouse, and he, you hear a crack because he broke his leg. Damn. I could be. love it. What'd you say? I love it. Uh, yeah, uh, that could be... Uh the the most correct interpretation i like that a lot and I, I find that that makes a lot of sense yeah and the other the other one is that um or the other information piece of information is that near the end when you watch him being eaten alive his eye is missing so i think i think a really fun like detail that i saw somebody try to like what's the word i'm thinking of here 
a really interesting perspective that someone took was that the seagull with the one eye wasn't the one-eyed second hand. It was actually him from the future trying to warn himself from the past. Remember, seagulls are the have the souls of dead sailors in them. Robert Pattinson dies, and he, as a seagull, tries to warn himself of the impending doom because he's in purgatory with himself of an older generation. I just, I just think that's so well put. My mind is blown right now. My mind is absolutely blown. Wow. Wow. So many different entities and creatures with one eye. Both the previous wiki, Pattinson, as well as the seagull have one eye. And I think that's a great way of tying it together. So, But under that theory, then, um, the one-eyed wiki before Pattinson is just not really a part of it. I, I don't know. See, that's that's something that I kind of bounce back and forth with. I don't think that he's just not a part of it. I think I think the whole point of his character, I think, is to, number one, I can see Robert Eggers trying to just throw a monkey wrench for discussion because obviously he wanted this to be super open-ended, so maybe he, he just made the guy have one eye so we could have this very debate, right? Almost like a red herring. Yeah, so I, I feel like that's more what that is. Um, and... It's just it's so tough to put because it could go so many different ways. Um, I I think I think that this second hand was meant to be the older version of of this character's like the same person almost. So you know how Ephraim Winslow was Howard's Robert Pattinson's person that he killed, right? Right. I feel like this second hand before Howard got there was Defoe's character's version of that. Right. Yeah. It's a foil. Yes. It's the, the exact juxtaposition. Yes. They're the, of, I think uh, that's meaning to prove that they're the same. And like I said, Robert Eggers threw in the eye missing as a like <clears throat> red herring just to throw a wrench into debate. Yeah, well, that, that really does further the point that they're the same person. They both have this victim that keeps you know popping up, whether it be in conversation, their minds, or in hallucinations. Right. Um. Uh, see the way I took it, and people have talked about this online when I researched it, you know, after I'd seen the film. But it came to me right as I had, uh, right as I'd finished seeing the film for the second time, um, was that the I, I agree that Pattinson is perhaps in purgatory, but I think it's more of a test. I think it's more of a uh, like a, almost like a Winslow or Thomas Wake rather. Um, Defoe's character is a is a prosecutor, and he's trying to get a confession out of uh, out of um, Robert Pattinson's character in this strange, like we said, purgatory environment. And all of the all of the um, you know, hallucinations and the things from Pattinson's past that keep popping up, plus the endless work and the endless torment by Wake are all somehow in some sort of metaphysical way far greater than our comprehension are designed to get this confession out of Pattinson and then right afterwards you know why'd you spill your beans why'd you spill your beans after he confesses to letting the real Ephraim Winslow die that's when the action really starts to pick up and the characters are you know well the character of uh of uh Willem Dafoe is shortly after he's destroyed because he has no further use to whatever being is orchestrating this uh trial and then shortly after upon 
reaching the top of the lighthouse and falling to his death, that is his uh, condemnation. That's his charge. So as in the light that he sees and laughs at and then slips, you could say that instead of him slipping, that's more him getting expelled to hell. Right, yeah. You, you're all the way at the top and you see this light and then you fall immediately right back down. Yeah, I really like that. That does explain a lot, and like that's that's one I hadn't even thought of. And that is such a like like, like you were describing how what I had thought or what I had seen. I like that a lot. But like there's one scene, and this is just gonna how it's gonna go with this because there's so many scenes, and a lot of these, like you said, they probably can be red herrings. Another one that I a scene that I can't wrap my head around is the one where Howard is pushing the the boat, the lifeboat, out to go to sea. And right. Wake <clears throat> runs up behind him with an axe, breaks the boat, and then chases Howard back into the house. And when he gets in there, he, he plunges the, the axe into the table, and he starts talking to him, and he starts talking about how he's insane. Or Howard, or Wake to Howard, who just ran away for his life from the axe man. He's telling him about how he's crazy, about how he's lost it. And then... Defoe's character does something really interesting. He flips the script, and he looks at Pattinson, and he says, you chased me with an axe. You broke it. Oh, yeah. Ooh, I forgot about that. Yeah. And that's gaslighting. That's what I think. I think it's gaslighting. You think that's just straight-up gaslighting? See, well, he says a line that makes me want to go back to what I was saying, because you almost had me. You almost had me and made me flip my script completely. Until I thought of this scene. Because, think about it. What are both their names? Thomas. They're both named Tommy. And Defoe looks at Pattinson and his character says, chased old Tommy with an axe. And when you think of it, it's correct in both ways. Ooh, yeah. Ooh, yeah. It doesn't matter which character chases the other. The statement, you chased old tommy with an axe is factual right which that, i mean makes me lean back towards the first one here's my idea on that I, I don't really know i think we can leave uh we can leave it up to this is this leaves it open to many interpretations there's no concrete answer but what does that scene remind you of which one what just think it's real hard what we just when, about? when Pattinson is carrying an axe across the beach, uh-huh. chasing, chasing Thomas Wake after the boat is smashed up with an axe. What film? I, in... I can tell you my the film that it makes me think of instantly. And it's funny you say that because because uh, the second I got done saying it, I said it was esque of this director. Are you talking about The Shining? I'm talking about The Shining. Yeah. It that that is an homage to The Shining. Oh, if you look at the gate. That 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 Robert Pattinson takes the the way he walks with the axe across the beach, chasing um, chasing uh, Thomas Wake. It is exactly how Nicholson, how Jack Torrance walks with the axe. Right. The only escape route, the boat was was destroyed in in a a, a similar manner that the snowmobile in The Shining is destroyed. I don't know what is being said here, but I do know that because of that in my head, that is concrete evidence that this is Robert Eggers' version of The Shining. See, what's hilarious, what's so funny, 
and I we've not looked any of this up. This is literally like we haven't discussed this point beforehand. So it's hilarious that you make that point because the second that that movie ended when I was watching it, I said this is Stanley Kubrick esque. Like right. that's exactly oh, yeah. what this feels like. It felt like a Stanley Kubrick film through and through. And it's so funny that you make that point for that reason alone, because once again, I hadn't told you that we hadn't rehearsed this beforehand. And it's so funny that that like and I know that like that's it's kind of I don't want to say it's the, the public opinion that it's very Kubrick-esque. It's very well known. It's it's like Stanley Kubrick. But yeah, but I haven't seen anyone make the distinct, distinction that it's like The Shining. It is very much Shining like and there are so many scenes you can pick apart from each movie that make no sense until you go back and you really try to do a deep dive, which really can fly over the, the average viewer's head that just kind of watch it to watch it. They're not watching it to dive. And it just, and well, it, for that reason, it'll get ridiculed, but it's so good. Well, we could talk about The Shining all day. I have a theory that will blow your mind about that. But should I say that another scene in the shining that mirrors one in the lighthouse is when you know it's sort of at the climax uh uh wendy runs up the stairs she looks over to make a long story short she looks to the right and there's a bear giving fellatio to a man yes. on the bed right it's a yes. man in a bear suit right yes and that's kind of like kubrick throws it in there and it just sweeps you off your feet because it has nothing to do with the the narrative it has nothing to do with anything it's just super creepy, right? Right. I have a theory that we will go over on this podcast about what that means. I didn't make the theory, but it's the only one that makes sense. As do I. What's funny is that I have – I'm pretty sure we're going to have the same point. But like you said, we, we can't go over Kubrick. We cannot make this jump even though it's so enticing and it's right there. We can't because this is the month of Eggers. This is the month of Eggers. But the scene in Eggers' film that is directly paralleled with that is the dog scene is the the scene in which Pattinson walks Thomas Wake like a dog makes him and bark. buries him alive, makes him bark, buries him alive while Wake is reciting a beautiful monologue, obviously, about the sea. Right. But, and that's, like, right at the end of the movie. And there's really no explanation as to what it means why it was included and i'd like to hear some of your thoughts on that i mean it's hard to say because like I, what i want to do is i want to get the transcript or the script and i want to read over that dialogue again because like you said it was beautiful but other than that it's just that character and that would be something i i i feel so like i'm i wish that we would have or that i would have had that part of the script pulled up because i feel like there's such a deep meaning there just because every line was so poignant and it was so purposeful that there's obviously a reason it is there. Right, yeah. These Let us reiterate that the lines in the lighthouse, there's not a single line that seems like it's without purpose. Oh, Every exactly. Line. Like, you're, like yeah. there, there are some that make you laugh, like the lobster bit where Defoe's character is yelling at Pattinson's character who's drunk about liking his food. Yeah, I've got that pulled up, actually. It's one of the greatest pieces of writing that I've seen. Right. A long time. If it's, you find it's, that, it's amazing. If you find that, the him and that monologue near the end where he's getting buried, I would want you to recite it so we can dissect it. Um, there is another uh, theory, though, that we have yet to discuss that is very, it's very reminiscent of the story itself. 
What's that? The, the mythological story of Prometheus and Proteus, and I'm not going to go too in-depth because I think this one's probably the most well-known. Um, Proteus was, in essence, the keeper of information. He was known as the friend of the sea beasts, and he protected knowledge and this light with his life. He was very defensive of it, very, very, like, he'd get agitated if you asked him about it. Who does that sound like to you? Uh, Wake. Sounds just like Wake's character, about the light just itself. Wake, yeah. The true, yeah, you can't see the light, you can't touch the light, the light's mine, all this and that. Prometheus's character was known to be a trickster. At some point, he did in fact steal the light, gave it to humanity, who then wanted more. And that, that whole curiosity, that trickster self, that is very much so Howard. That's very much so Robert Pattinson's character. And there are more nuances that connect them that I, I'm not remembering off the top of my head. But this is the part that really, other than the fact that those two things are very similar with Proteus and Prometheus, this is the part that really stood out to me. You know how Prometheus died? How? I want you to take a Oh, guess. I know. I want you to take a Oh, guess. I know. How did Prometheus die? Birds. He was eaten alive by seagulls. Hmm. What does that sound like? It sounds just like Thomas Howard. That is exactly how Thomas Howard dies. The last scene of the of the movie is a, as we've described, is a very gnarly and nasty shot of Robert Pattinson being eaten by gulls. To the point of mutilation. I mean, he is being eaten. Yeah. He's not being picked. He's being eaten. eaten. So yeah, it, it's it, it's so they're so close. I feel like I feel like that one's more of an homage. I really don't think that that was a like meant to be like a, oh this is literally what the story is i think that robert eggers was like this is cool and it fits with the mythology of everything that these characters are all about so i'll do it um, well yeah it's 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 deliberate though we we can't definitely. say that this is some kind of theory no, or something because no, no. that's deliberate it's i definitely. have the monologue from yeah that, well it fits perfectly into what i'm about to read you guys i have the monologue of wake when he is being buried alive by pattinson do you want me to read it hit us with it you wish to see what's in the lantern so did me last decision. Ugh. Sorry. No, you're good. You wish to see what's in the lantern. So did me last assistant. Oh, what protean forms swim up from men's minds and melt in hot Promethean plunder, scorching eyes with divine shames and horrors and casting them down to Davy Jones. The others stay blind, yet in it see all divine graces and to fiddler's green scent where no man is suffered to want and toil, but is ancient, mutable, and unchanging, as the she who girdles around the globe. Them's true. You'll be punished. That could not be more perfect than what we just did. Once again, right. we're, we're just winging this as we go. We did not well, we did not discuss this. The fact that, that in this moment of you finding this thing, I talked about Prometheus and Proteus, and then you, the quote is literally about Prometheus and Proteus. Right, yeah. That is so I, perfect. When I uh, when I watched the film, um, I caught Prometheus, but I'm not familiar with Proteus and Prometheus. Like, I can't say that I am. But now reading this, like, it's really, this is how a director or a writer masterfully creates the, uh, y y you know, in, implanting yeah implanting this story of prometheus and proteus as being uh an analogy for uh wake and um and howard or the other way around vice versa 
Exactly. It's and, so masterful. And I think I think an interesting point you said writer, director. In this in this instance, it's the same person. Um Robert Eggers wrote it with his brother Max. And it is, as you said, everything you've just said. Um, like I said, I like what you just said. I don't think that the Prometheus Proteus, I don't think that's so much a theory or should be. I think that that's more of a it's it's an analogy. It is a this is what I this is something that is very influential on in the story, but I don't think that is the story. Mm-mm. Which is why no, I not at like all. Th- there's all these parallels to it, but I don't think that this is trying to say, oh, look, I recreated Prometheus and Proteus, the the uh, the saga of these two. I think it's it's everything we've described before. It's one of the two. I think it's purgatory. I really do. Now, whether it's it's a test or whether they're the same person and they're it's, it's I shouldn't say purgatory because I guess my instance is more hell like he's already in hell. Um, and he's just destined to relive it, whether it be from the seagull or whether it be from one of the two versions of himself. Um, to your purgatory, to where, like you said, it's a test. I, I think it's one of those two. But I love- yeah, well, you're you're talking about him being hell and him being in hell, and that that leads me to believe that if that are the or if that's the case, then the the one eyed seagull, the one eyed previous wiki. And then the eventual corpse of Robert Pattinson are just proof that he is living this over and over and over. And these are just different iterations I'm so, of I'm so stupid. The single soul. I'm so stupid. You know what I just thought about you saying that? What's up? What if the face he pulled up, I know it was a different face. What if the face he pulled up was him? His face. Yeah. Could have been. Absolutely. Like it, been. It's been, it's been. Yeah. Like, it's been in the ocean, and I know it's a different face, and I know some people at home might be scouring, but, like, what if, you know, like, the the last hand fell mad, talking about sirens and whatnot, he had one eye. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. It makes so um, much sense. He pulls up himself, and then there's another random scene where Pattinson literally finds himself in the lighthouse when he turns around, he sees a naked Defoe, whose eyes are literally the lighthouse itself glowing and it's the most beautiful shot in the film it is gorgeous and it's actually based upon a a classic sort of victorian painting yeah um looks exactly like it um and i think that one was also based upon prometheus that original painting yeah i i so i just i think everything that we've discussed the more that we go over it i think that they're the same person man that that's what that's what i'm inclined to believe or it's it's not meant to exactly be, you know, the same physical form, you know, but it's more of a fluid, more of a more of a open to interpretation form of the uh, the infinite loop sort of idea. Right, and and honestly, it could be it could be a mixture of the two. Maybe the, maybe they are the same person, but the older version is destined to break his younger version. Right, but possibly, yeah. <laughs> like like it could Absolutely. it really could be there's so much that's what makes this movie so good is that the more you break it down what looks like random scenes is so rich with story and can be interpreted in so many different ways which is what makes this just an art form in itself well i think the real red herring here is the dialogue you you're so interested in the idiosyncratic uh language that thomas wake uses especially that you you forget to even look for symbols, themes, motifs, foils, things like that, because it, it's just so beautifully written. Right. And 
but such interesting, such interesting language is used. And from what I've also found, there's not a lot of, uh, I mean, there's some, but a lot of this is in layman's terms. A lot of, a lot of the, the dialogue doesn't use, uh, you know, terms that the, the average viewer wouldn't, wouldn't know about. I'm sure seafarers and wikis alike have jargon that would be completely inaccessible to you know the viewers of this film in you know 20 uh you know 2020 you know 2021 2022 whenever 2019 um so it's just so masterful how these these common words and terms are strung together in such a way that makes them so interesting uh interpretation aside theory aside i cannot stress enough that the writing is some of the best in its class agreed and 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 i think a good note here to end on before we move into our final segment i want to give props and i don't think there's any words that can describe the acting chops of defoe and pattinson throughout this whole film i want to i want to put this into perspective this movie mostly dialogue between You're right, yeah. between two characters, there are There's nothing that really goes on. In the no, movie. it's just it's isolation. There are two actors that primarily are there. There's just two. I think there's three build, and the the third one is is the siren, the mermaid that Robert Pattinson's character makes love to. I I it's just the fact that those two were able to in this jargon in these very very specific Robert Eggers like like he was very pinpoint on what he wanted from each character from each actor very specific and it works so well and the actors Defoe and Pattinson have did did such a masterful job that like i i did they win, how many awards did they win for that if any i know i they have to right yeah I, i'm sure they won a lot of awards they had to. They had to have been something, right? Oh, uh, let's see. Here. Defoe, ind- so it says 2020 Independent Spirit Award for Best Supporting Male was Defoe. Satellite Award for Best Actor in a Supporting Role was Defoe. And it, oh, Independent Spirit Award for Best Cinematography was Jaron. I cannot pronounce his last name. Bla- Blanche. Blanche did the get subbed. It all. Uh, so yes, it. According to cinemablend.com, so yes, it did get recognition in some form or another, though it is surprisingly snubbed completely at the Golden Globes, which was which has nominations for both dramas, musicals, comedies, but still. Well, you know, horror films don't don't win a lot of things like that. But still, well, like still, it should have been more heavily. It, it, it was a uh, Darren Blantz got a BAFTA nominee for best cinematography. Um, it did get okay. So Blansk was the one who got rightfully so. A twenty four and Jaron Blansk got a lot of nominations. He he got an Oscar nominee for best cinematography, as a BAFTA nomination, a uh, the best buddy picture at the AR, AARP <laughs> movie. It was a nominee. Um, Alice, <laughs> that's so funny. Um, Alice, especially because it was from the AARP. I know the Alice. The American of, Association for Retired People. Sorry, I'll let you go. No, you're good. The Alice of Women Film Journalists, the EDA Award nominee. Uh, it was a the best supporting actor was Willem Dafoe in that instance. Uh, just a bunch of nominees. It did win. Oh, Jaron Blansk won another award, rightfully so. Once again, um, 
Nominee, nominee. I'm not seeing a lot of victories here. Winner. At the Palomares Logos de Oro for Best Supporting Actor, and it was Defoe, which I think is... That's probably Spain. But, like, I'm looking at... Like, it's got, like, a laundry list of awards and nominations, but none of them from the ones that you would imagine. Right. Like, so... It had one Oscar nomination, and that was for Jaron Blansk. Once again, rightfully so. Great cinematography. Some of the best fantastic. I've seen. Especially, especially the use of shadows. Dude. Because it's in black and white, right? There's no color to work on. So right. it all has to be shadow. In the and movement and the angles that they take throughout the entire film is just so crisp. And it's so, like, you, like once we were talking about Eggers and his, and his writing was so pinpoint. The cinematography was so, like, if it was any different, it would have been an awful movie. Right, yeah, but it's it's just this is a this is a film. This is an exercise in you know being a member of the master class in acting and directing. It's phenomenal. Oh my! Gosh. Um, one more thing I'd like to touch on though. I will touch on this very briefly. Okay. There's a lot of body things that go on in the film. I've, right, I've, a lot I've, of. I'm happy you you pointed this out. You're right. A lot of bodily functions. Uh, feces, urine, farts, things like that. Plus the addition of the homosexual undertones of the film. There's some dialogue. The characters are very drunk and they almost make out. They almost kiss one another. There's masturbation. And of course, we can't forget that the lighthouse is a giant phallus. Very in, much so. In in its symbols. Um, I think it would be very hard to make a movie about a lighthouse without it being a phallic symbol because that's what all lighthouses pretty much look like. But there's something that Eggers is saying here about men and their relationship with one another, especially when uh, when isolation is an added, um, an added part. I don't exactly know what he's saying. Right. See, last last thing I'll add because I do think it's important to add to what you're saying. Um, I read somewhere, and I you guys can look it up. I hope it's true. Um, Eggers in the script wanted a scene where he had the lighthouse, and then it would uh, match cut to a an erect penis. Oh, oh, well, yeah, yeah, and, exactly. And and a twenty four and the production company said no. Yeah, we can't have that. And even we talk about the the little uh, mermaid. The the, the mermaid doll, yeah, siren doll that Pattinson has, and he he masturbates to uh, you know, doll. the siren yeah. doll in his hand, right? He holds it in his hand, but right in the scene before he almost kisses Thomas Wake, he breaks the doll, he smashes the doll, and that symbolically could be a representation of him rejecting the female of the outside world and embracing and accepting the the male the male in uh in within his own sexuality right and they coddle a lot like that you can see them literally cuddling um and they, they do that slow dance to the make out scene well almost make out um then they fight to kind of reinstill masculinity 
Uh, right. I think everything you're saying is right on point. I, I think I think Eggers. I I hope maybe one day we can interview him and ask him personal questions about this stuff. No, we'll get him on the show. Let's get him on the show. All right, but that sure. that will be the end of this long-winded segment. All right, in our final segment of these shows, we will always have watched one movie that has come out in theaters or been released to Netflix or whatever and give our opinion about it. Um, this week, it's Morbius, and as we described earlier, Morbius has had a record for superhero movies and their second week drop-off at the box office. It lost 74% of what it had made in compared to the first week, and I hate to say rightfully so, it was the best movie I've ever seen, man. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. No, I actually haven't seen Morbius. Um, I've read some reviews. I've seen what people are saying. And uh doesn't look so hot for old, old Leto. Here's the thing. I think the actors in it did really well. Um, like, Leto, I would feel like he did, he did well in this movie with what he had. Um, I, I don't know the complexity of the character Morbius. I've never read comic books about him. I've not read any other deeper fiction about his character. So I don't know anything going in. And here's the thing. Watching it, it feels like the shell of the project that should have been. Like, it feels like it, it, it's not complete. It feels like it could be a decent movie. I don't think there's a world where it could have been great. But it's like, I want to enjoy it. I described how I enjoy Doctor Who. Uh, Matt Smith is the villain. He is, uh, what do they call him? Uh, Milo. Um, he is, I, I guess a good way, I guess a good thing to do now would probably be to roughly describe the story. So Matt Smith's character and Jared Leto's character, Milo and Morbius, they both have the same blood disorder that leaves them crippled. They walk around with, with crutches and their lifespan is not very long. And so the, the movie is so convoluted in this story. So the first thing you see is, is just in every trailer you've seen it where Morbius is standing in front of the cave and he cuts his hand open and the, the, the bats fly at him. Um, that was to capture vampire bats, which we learn later, is so that he could try to find out why, how they digest blood because that will somehow solve his ailment. Um, they don't really explain how it solves his ailment, just that it will. Um, but then after this scene, after this initial scene, we get a really Star Wars-esque like, like, like circle fade to, or fade in to... The past. It jumps back to Morbius's past, and it shows him as a child in Greece, where he is at this hospital for kids like him. So, you see young Morbius, you see the entrance of young Milo, and they're discussing, and like out of a bad comedy, as they're discussing, you just see Milo's character just kind of keel over, and this weird beeping start, right? And at, like, at, it's literally as Morbius is discussing, this poor child actor just like leans over and just lays to his side, and it's kind of comical. And uh, Morbius looks around, young Morbius, I should say, and he's like, help, nurse, and no one comes. So he turns around, disassembles a pen, opens the back of the machine hook to this poor child, takes out the spring, and puts it into the machine. And that fixes it. Okay. Milo, like, in the same comical sense that he keeled over, he raises back up like a zombie from the dead, and he looks at Morbius, and at, at, he might have said something like, you saved me, I don't know. Then we get, like, this really quick, like, 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 chain of events to where this, 
the guy that runs the place is like, Morbius, you have a gift. You saved him with a pen. I'm going to send you to New York to be trained. And Morbius is like, what about Milo? And the guy's like, I will say, I will, you know, not train. I almost said train. I will raise Milo as my own. And so then it cuts to Morbius as an adult. And it says something very quickly about him getting a doctorate at 19. And all this is happening in the first five minutes. So you could, you can, if you hear the tone in my voice, it's very frustrating because like, like I said, the story is interesting in itself, but it's so convoluted and so quick. And I don't think this is a director problem. I think this is a editing problem. Um, I don't know why they took this route, but this is the route we're going. So then, like I said, you cut back to Morbius as an adult and he's talking to a girl who has a, like a young girl who's got the same issues as he does. Then he goes into the other end of the hospital where it just randomly has this giant like tube-like structure that he can house these bats in. I don't know how no one suspected this, but there it is. Um, he just randomly has this perfect department in his hospital that he works at that is, you know, suited for a guy that will eventually become a vampire. Um, <laughs> yeah, and so he uh. He he takes out like he he kills a bat like he he like he cuts it open and he takes out the gland that digests blood does once again doesn't explain how it fixes it um, somehow creates this serum and he goes to talk to Milo who is now Matt Smith as an adult and he's like I think I can fix it it's very experimental so experimental that we have to get on a boat outside of the United States to do it and they fast forward they do that and surely enough when they stick the serum inside Morbius he becomes the vampire, the living vampire. And they don't explain how that happens. They don't explain how that works. But huzzah, he is cured, but at what cost? He's now a <laughs> he's now a um the living vampire who thirsts for human blood. And oh, I didn't I didn't say Morbius the human was very well known for creating this fake blood, this synthetic blood, right? And that that's his kind of claim to fame is that like we don't need real blood anymore cuz I create synthetic blood. Um, and so the whole movie, the rest of the movie is Milo is like, why don't you give me, cause he made like three serums and Milo's like, why can't I be like you? And Morbius is like, it's a curse. You can't. And so eventually <laughs> because Morbius can't control his hunger, he goes about, well, I should put it this way. A random woman at the hospital he works at comes up dead, drained of blood, and so they blame Morbius because the cops are investigating because once Morbius first turned into the vampire, he ate everybody on the boat except for his girlfriend. Um, you know, once again, that makes a lot of sense. And because uh, he, he can't control his bloodthirst, but the second he sees his girlfriend, you know, he's not thirsty anymore. Um, but so the police... <laughs> yeah, the police think it's... Morbius and Morbius is arrested and it turns out that Milo had taken the serum behind Morbius's back and he's now a vampire and the rest of the movie is Morbius flying around trying to figure out how to control himself and Milo eating people until the final battle where this is the part that irks me okay we get to the very Shoot. end we get to the very end Milo wants okay. to Milo wants to convince Morbius to stop hiding and to fight him so he gets his girlfriend, right? He's telling her, like, say his name. And he's like, Morbius. And so finally, Morbius shows up. But when he gets there, Milo's gone. And his girlfriend's bleeding out because she's dying. Because he stabbed her with his long, pointy fingernail in the throat. And he's dying, and she's dying now. So she's dying. And she's like, let me help you. I.e., 
trying to tell Morbius to drink her blood so that he could be strong. Oh, yeah, no, I guess another detail. Synthetic blood doesn't make them as strong as when they drink human blood. You know, big caveat there. So, of course. Yeah, so he watches her die, and then Morbius screams and drinks her blood, and then, poof, Milo's there. And he's like, ha, you're finally like me. And then they fight, and then they, they fight, and they fight, and they somehow get underground, and then Morbius channels his power of bat calling and he beats he beats milo by uh injecting him with a some sort of poison that he had made earlier in the film and as the film's ending morbius is flying through the air do you remember that part where i said he drank his girlfriend's blood yeah she just wakes up like she wakes up as a vampire she like you know like, like they had to went through pain linking like pain Taking links to make sure that you understand that the vampires were created by a serum, but lo and behold, she gets bit, and unlike everyone else that's been bit, she just comes back. And that's the end of the movie. What? Yep, and all, oh yeah, also there's a post-credit to where somehow Michael Keaton's vulture gets put into the Sony-verse with Morbius. Oh yeah, Adrian Toomes. Yeah, and those two meet up, and but then that's the end of the movie, that's it. Sounds... Stupid. Sounds like it's a lackluster attempt at making a superhero movie. It, it, I don't, like, that's the thing. Is that, like, like there's so many. So I had also been told, and once again, this is just word of mouth. I don't know if this is truthful or not. I had been told that there was a, supposed to be a lot more involvement of Vulture throughout the main story, but then they decided they wanted it to be a surprise, so they cut all his scenes that were throughout the movie. Oh, yeah? And that really left it like a shell. Like, And you can tell. Like, like I, I'm not saying don't watch it. But, like, it's not a good movie. But here's the thing. Like I said, it seemed like it had a purpose. It seemed like the actors knew what they were doing. Other than Matt Smith. Matt Smith has come out and said on the record that he does not know where his character is supposed to go. Other than that his character died, supposedly. Um, yeah. But, like, it's just – it's so confusing. It's so convoluted. And it feels like it was a producing and editing decision that made it that way. Right. Like, just from my point of view, I could be completely wrong. I think the director's name is Daniel Espinoza. And I feel like like he could have had a lot of say in it, but like just from watching it, I don't want to blame him because it does look like there's a lot of heart put into it. But like, and this is this will be the quote for how I say this, how I took this movie. They sacrifice actual story for CGI for for effects. Well, I'm sure it's very uh, visually impressive. See, well, so here's the thing: when they're flying through the air and when they're like moving, they have this really cool like 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 trailing effect that I like. But sometimes, like Matt Smith and Morby or and Jared Leto's characters, sometimes they will like be halfway turned into a vampire, and their just their face will kind of start turning, and it looks bad. Like it just it looks, looks really bad. It then. just looks disgusting. It looks so. And like there's a scene where, where where Matt Smith is dancing around, and for some reason they superimpose the vampire face on him. Oh, ooh, yeah, I'm so, sure that's I'm sure that sucked. So it was just like it just made no sense, and it just was like so like. I I, I want to enjoy it. Like I watch it, and I'm like, this could be really fun, but it is stupid, and it's just it makes no sense. And like I want to see more 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 Morbius because I want to see the character done properly. But also, like I said, I don't know any of the backstory, so I don't know how much more depth the character has in the comic books. So this might have been the most depth we ever find from this character which would be very depressing. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, they Another noteworthy tidbit is that at the end when, when Vulture is uh, 
he he meets up with Morbius. And remember, Vulture just teleported from another universe, and somehow in the next day he has all his Vulture armor from the other universe. They don't explain that. He just has it. Strange. Yeah. He just has it. So he just has it, and um, he talks about Spider-Man. Like, he says, I think this has to do with Spider-Man. And Morbius's character isn't shocked. He doesn't. It's not like he's questioning who he is. He just he just goes along with it, and that makes me think that there is a Spider-Man in this universe. But it's perhaps a different Spider-Man. Or is it Toby Maguire? Or not Toby Maguire? Uh, Andrew Garfield. Andrew Garfield. See that? I mean, he is the Sony. He is the Sony Spider-Man. So That's what I'm saying, and so it's kind of like could like that be? Might... We might get a Garfield v. Morbius v. Adrian Toomes sort of sort of film. Who knows? That would be fun. See, here's the thing. This is what I hate, is that the movie was just bad, right? Like like I said, I've said all the reasons why, and I said I wanted to like it, but I don't. It's a bad movie. But because it made over okay. $100 million, right? It's made over $100 million in two weeks. Right. So it's, there's going to be a sequel. They've made enough money that they can say we made a profit, and it's worth making a second one to continue this story, especially if Spider-Man's involved. And I hate to say it, but if Spider-Man's involved, I am interested. Specifically, because yeah, I'm I want interested to know too, who just it because is. it's Spider-Man. Which one? Right, just because it's Spider-Man. Right, like, I, it, like if it was just a random Spider-Man that they're gonna try to introduce, I would hate it. I'd be like, whatever. But if it's Andrew Garfield, I'm a big Garfield guy, so yeah, I'd be, I'd be a big fan of that. You see, I wasn't, but he really saved him. Like, like he really, he's come around a lot after watching um, No Way Home. Oh, one thing that I, uh, one thing that I heard, like a, a little, uh, little rumor. We talked about Will Smith, uh, Miles Morales being played by Jaden Smith. Which you know, uh, see, I saw that somewhere. If. I, I don't care about that casting like like one like I don't I'm not gonna judge Jaden Smith by his father so like it, right. like I don't like I know he was in that pretty crappy remake of Karate Kid and I don't know much like I I think he's a pretty good actor I don't know much else about him so like I I don't like I don't know whether or not I would like that casting or not but um if it's Miles Morales in that universe I would actually be kind of hyped because that would be interesting. I, I'm a big fan of Miles Morales. Yeah. Um, I really like him. Um, I love Into the Spider-Verse, as does everyone. So, As I was about to say, I really wouldn't mind if they took a Into the Spider-Verse type of route, because in if this is a Miles Morales, what if like you could easily pull off a story arc that gives Andrew Garfield another movie, but also says farewell to him, as in, like you remember, Into the Spider-Verse, that Spider-Man dies so Miles Morales can be Spider-Man. Right. That's something that Ooh. is very feasible. Yeah, that, and that seems like it might be the direction that they're going in. Yeah, like like you, you bring back Andrew, give him a full movie, and at the end, like, you know, introduce Miles Morales and that whole story arc. Maybe give it, maybe not make it one movie, maybe make it part one and part two. Um, and then at the end of the second movie, Andrew Garfield dies, and Jaden Smith's Miles Morales is full formed and he's now the superhero and he fights Venom and he fights Vulture and he fights Morbius in that universe. I like that a lot. I do too. That, I mean that sounds like it's the that's what they're trying to trying to do here. It does. It's gonna be like a sort of like an off brand Spider Man away home. It will. And you know, I'm not opposed to it. Um I uh I just don't want them to go super into the Spider-Verse route, where it's like they pull all the other Spider-Men from their universe and come, you know, just, like, I don't want them to rehash that story. I want it to be unique. 
Yeah. And um, it, it just seems like uh, it seems like there's they can mess up Morbius, and like there won't be like that big of a you know backlash over it. But they know that if they mess up Spider Man and make a bad Spider Man movie, yeah, and there will be like there will be a riot and people will burn couches out on the street or something. Actually. So like, I, I feel like they would put a lot more uh, a lot more you know, creative, not effort, but there'd be more like creative synchronicity there. Right. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think it says a lot about the movie Morbius that the only thing that saves it is the potential connection to Spider-Man. Yeah. Um, well, I'll have to see it. Yeah. I, I would like, I, I think I'll watch it after you talked about it and maybe uh, next week I can, uh, I can touch on it a little bit. I definitely say, and that's something we can open with if you do. I definitely say watch it just for the sake of watching it because, like, it's not like, like I said, it. I just, I would like to hear your take on it. Um, I'm not gonna say it's a, it's an awful movie, but it's definitely not one that I would particularly want to watch again. Um, but yeah, so here we go. So this is going to be a se- the the way we end these segments in these shows is that we will always give a collective rating on movies. Like we both will give our rating, and then we'll meet in the middle. And I think we should do it out of five stars. Um, if you disagree, should we do it out of ten? It's whatever you want to do. We'll do ten. Ten? Okay. Yeah. So since you haven't seen it, we'll just go with my star rating. Ten stars. Okay. It is a solid. That's your rating? Sol- no, 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 no. We're going out oh. of ten stars. No, 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 no. It is a solid three out of ten. Three out of ten? Maybe, okay. maybe, maybe more like two and a half, but I'll be nice and I'll give it three. Because it's got potential. Sure. But, like, that is a stretch. Three out of ten. Yep, that okay. is the first official beyond-the-screen film rating. Uh, I think for our ratings, we, we shouldn't just do stars. Though. Like, for Morbius, it should be three things <laughs> out of ten. All right, fine. I like it. Three three or packets or, like, so Morbius throughout the film just drinks out of bags of blood. Okay. Three or ten. It's three blood bags out of ten. Okay. And for the lighthouse. Oh gosh, I, we don't even have to like it. Ten out of ten. Um. Uh. Wooden mermaid dolls. I'm gonna give it a nine out of ten. Nine missing eyeballs out of ten. All right. So so we'll we'll meet in the half at nine and a half eyeless mermaid wooden dolls out of <laughs> that works for me all right and so those are the first two um thank you guys for watching i'm sorry if we're a little rough around the edges to begin with this is only episode one and i think we had a lot of really good debate so uh we look forward to catching up with you guys next week next week we will have both watched the unbearable weight of massive talent i am so excited about it um, i'm hyped more film news um and the witch the witch the next installment and then the week after that so if any of you guys are like you guys are like oh i'm gonna be listening to this all the time the third week of our show the finale of the robert eggers month we will be watching the northman his new film that comes out on the 22nd of april and i cannot tell you how ecstatic i am i've been waiting for this for so long it's gonna be great it's gonna be absolutely great it's and it's got willem dafoe it's who else does it i want to know 
The guy that plays the Northman. I don't know the names of the characters yet. It's a Skarsgård. Alexander Skarsgård Amleth. I wonder if they're related. Oh, yeah. They're related for sure. There's like there's like seven of the Skarsgårds. Alexander Skarsgård. His name is Amleth in the movie. And... Yeah. Yep, Brother Bill. Man, the Skarsgård, the Skarsgårds are making it happen. They are. There's several more. I think their father was actually a famous actor as well. Of course he was. We have, uh, we have, okay, so we have two that I can see right now. Characters. Wow. Wow. The casting for the Northman is Oh, it's insane. Nuts. Okay, we have, yeah, we have Ralph Innocent, who was the lead in The Witch. He was the father. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we also have, um, the, the mountain. The mountain is in it. Um, you, can't have, you can't have a movie about Norse mythology and not have the mountain in it. Of course. We have Ethan Hawke. We have Nicole Kidman. We have Bjork. Anya Taylor-Joy of The Witch. We have so many uh, act Right. And it seems to me that Robert Eggers is sort of creating a, uh, a little universe of actors um, in his own works as his catalog uh, uh, goes further into the future. What's it like? And at like... The best directors do. I mean, you think of Wes Anderson and with Bill Murray and uh, you think of which is um, which let me tell you, the month of Wes Anderson is something I am so pumped for. Like I cannot I can't tell you how ready I am to go over Wes Anderson's filmography. I've got a lot to say about a lot of his films. Very excited. Um, but yeah, and that that's been beyond the screen. Any final words? I guess we've already done that, but I'll do it again. Um. Get ready for six-hour episodes starting with Wes Anderson week. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be so much, but this is why we do this. All okay, right. well, yeah. uh, over and out. Over and out. We'll see you guys next week. See you guys next week.